Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Mike. I'm Wendy. And we got a hell of a story. Do we? (laughs) So we took a little time off because I was overwhelmed. What? Writing this story. No, you weren't. Hours and hours I spent. Oh, my. What's our story about? Okay, so I thought this was going to be a quick one until we started actually getting down into it. And the one that we're going to discuss today is the Leicester Street Massacre that happened in Memphis, Tennessee in 2008. I don't even remember hearing about this, but apparently it made national headlines. I didn't hear about it either that I remember. I On the surface, this looks like a cut and dry case. It does. And then I just was so back and forth the whole time. I'm going to start us off. On March 3rd of 2008, the Memphis, Tennessee police were called to a residence located on 722 Leicester Street in the Binghamton. <laughs> Let me get my shit together. That's all right. It's Binghamton. Yeah. And it, I'm struggling with that already. Okay. <clears throat> There's not a P and I keep wanting to put like Hampton and it's not there. A family member had been trying unsuccessfully to get in touch with someone at the residence. After contacting additional family and friends of the relative, they ended up calling the police to complete a welfare check. When police arrive at the residence, they find that the storm door is closed, but the front door is slightly open. However, no one is answering after they knock or provide verbal cues. The officers enter the home, and initially, they discover the bodies of four bloody adults in the living room. On further investigation, they find a nine-year-old victim barely alive in the hallway bathroom. A four-year-old victim is found in one of the bedrooms. Another bedroom holds two additional male victims, aged two and five, and a two-month-old female is also found alive. Now, I can't find where she was found in the home, but once they find her, like, she's immediately carried out of the home. And I probably should have said this at the beginning. So this is pretty gruesome. We are going to go into some details related to children that were assaulted and that were also killed. So this may not be an episode for everybody. Take it easy. You may not. You may just want to go to the trial portion of it. That's perfectly understandable. It's a rough case. It's it's pretty brutal. I don't I don't know how, what else to say. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Be cautious on this one. Now, one firefighter that had arrived at the home made the statement that he could smell the blood in the air as he had approached the house, describing it as a thick, spoiled smell like it had been there for a while. A fireman and an emergency technician were instructed to check the adult victims for signs of life. However, they ended up not touching the victim, stating it was very obvious by looking at them and the horrific scene that they were not alive. And so I guess I get what they're saying, but you should always in my opinion, check anyway. 
Yeah. Someone could just be barely holding on. Yeah. But apparently they've been there a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe visually they could tell. They were and, and they've been doing that for a while. So maybe that's why, too. You yeah. know, we're not Still. seasoned to this kind of thing. Right. Uh, when paramedics arrived, they were told that there was a child in the bathroom hallway that was perceived to be alive still. When they entered the bathroom, they discovered nine-year-old CJ, who's also known as Cecil Jr., with cuts on his face, puncture wounds on his abdomen, multiple superficial cuts to his neck, and what appeared to be a sawzall blade embedded and sticking out of his skull. He is he is alive. I just want to make sure everybody knows that he is alive with this what they perceived as a sawzall blade sticking out of his brain, his head. Now, paramedics did end up discovering another survivor, and that's a five-year-old Cedric Dotson, who police originally thought when they first sweeped the house, they thought he was deceased. Yeah, which again is why you should check everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, the three survivors that suffered multiple stab wounds and lacerations include nine-year-old CJ, also known as Cecil Jr. Dotson, five-year-old Cedric Dotson, and two-month-old Sonia Dotson. All three children were transported to the local hospital. It was La Bonner Children's. Since detectives were not sure who the perpetrator was and why the attacks had even occurred, they decided to quarantine these surviving children by having officers assigned to each child. They did not release their identities or their injuries to the media, and members of the family were not allowed to make contact from March 3rd to March 8th. That's a very long time, but I understand why, because obviously... This scene is pretty terrible. Yeah. They weren't sure who was involved. Exactly. Yeah. So now we're going to go over the deceased victims, and I'm going to tell you exactly what happened to them because I do feel it's important, and I do want to go ahead and get it out of the way, just so you can understand the weight of this situation. We have six victims. The first one, 30-year-old Cecil Dotson, suffered eight gunshot wounds, one to his head that fractured his jaw, and there were fibers found around the entry of the gunshot wound, which were consistent with someone placing a pillow over his face and firing through the pillow. One to his neck, which traveled, fracturing and penetrating his trachea and larynx. One to his chest. One to his right thigh. Two to the left thigh. One to the left leg. And one to the left foot. There was also 27-year-old Marissa Williams, who is Cecil Dotson's fiance. She had five gunshot wounds. One to the left side of her head, one to the right side of her chest, which exited the left side of her back, injuring her lungs and vertebral column on the way, one to her left leg, one to her right thigh, and one to the left side of her abdomen. The next victim is 33-year-old Hollis Seals, who had three gunshot wounds, one to his mouth, which fractured some of his teeth, his jaw, and continued into his neck, fracturing his first and second cervical vertebrae. One to his midline upper chest area that entered his lung and exited through his back. One on the side of his chest near his armpit, which traveled through his chest cavity, injuring his right lung and then stopping in his back muscles. The next victim is 22-year-old Shindri Robertson, who had four gunshot wounds. One to her right thigh, which traveled through the femoral vein, creating a large loss of blood. One to her left knee, one to her left calf, and one to her left thigh. So, a lot of leg shots. Everybody was shot in the leg, the adults, except for Hollis. That was the only person that wasn't shot in the leg. Now, the next two are the children that I'm going to go over. So, you can fast forward if you want to. Four-year-old Samario Dotson suffered blunt force and sharp force injuries. 
blunt force trauma to his head that resulted in multiple linear depressed fractures of the calvarium and the base of the skull with multiple contusions to his brain. Multiple abrasions and lacerations with one incised wound above the left ear that tore a portion of the scalp away from the skull. Multiple incised wounds to the head, neck, and right hand. One stab wound to the chest that went completely through his body, injuring his left lung and hemidiaphragm. Stab wounds to his stomach, spleen, and liver. Linear abrasions and bruises on his left arm. Abrasions on his right arm. Incised wound on his ring finger, consistent with trying to defend himself by holding up his hand or grabbing the knife. And our last victim, two-year-old Cecil Dotson II. He died from multiple sharp force injuries, including multiple stab wounds to his head, torso, and extremities. He had seven stab wounds that penetrated and fractured his skull and injured the right meningeal artery, which caused an epidural hemorrhage and edema of the brain with herniation, one puncture-style wound to the right of his head, two puncture-style stab wounds to his left cheek, two incised wounds on the left side of his face near his eye, one incised wound on his right ear, and there was a group of incised wounds that were varying lengths and an incised wound leading to a stab wound on his torso. Multiple incised and stab wounds on his back and then a mixture of sharp force and blunt force injuries on the left side of his torso. I know that's a lot to take in. It, it was really hard even just to, like just looking into this because it's so different compared to what happened to the adults and what happened to the children. So incised wounds are like clean, sharp cuts, like from a razor or a knife. Mm-hmm. The brutality towards the children. I mean, they were all, none, none of the children were shot. I want to make that very clear. Mm-hmm. No children were shot. They were all beaten or stabbed, which is a very personal way to harm somebody mm-hmm. and brutal. So now we're going to go over the crime scene. When detectives arrived on scene around 6.30, 7 on the night of March the 3rd, a film crew from the first 48 was already present. So you can watch an episode of this. Of It's uh, the first 48, Tracking a Killer, uh, Leicester Street Season 7, Episode 6. We did watch it. However, due to the city approving the show to have access and privileges to be on site for all homicides, the police were not able to tell them to leave and had to allow them access to the crime scene. So I just want to make that clear. This is a extremely horrific crime scene. As an officer, I feel like I would not want camera crews stomping all through a house. Yeah, you don't want them. I don't want them anywhere contaminating in there. the scene. Yeah, and they were already there. They were there waiting on them. So I don't think that they were in the house, but they were there, ready and filming, and they were coming in. The detectives immediately requested and returned with a search warrant, and police began gathering any and all evidence in the immediate vicinity of the deceased. Now, while gathering evidence, it was quickly discovered that portions of the crime scene were staged. There were two guns used. There was a 9mm and a 380. Neither gun was found at the scene, and the guns have never been recovered, so they haven't even been found to this day. The officers did find spent bullets located in the living room on the sofa cushion, on top of a piece of plastic from a window air conditioner, on the floor under Cecil, under the sofa, inside the arm of the sofa, between two sofa seat cushions, in the wall behind the sofa, and in the east wall of the living room. They're everywhere, but mainly in the sofa. Actual bullets, yes. Actual bullets. These are not the casings. Those are actual bullets. Now, two 9mm and three 380 shell casings. These are casings were found on the living room floor, a sealed Ziploc bag 
with 11 9 millimeter casings and five 380 casings was found under a jacket on the love seat. Officers believe that the perpetrator had collected the casings, intending on removing them from the scene. What the actual fuck? Yeah, like, what happened? Why did you stop? Why did you stop? And how, why would you have left them there? A Ziploc bag. Mm. I, a- I've never in my life heard of that. Maybe cops have. But what? Are you serious? They just happened to have that Ziploc bag? Or did they know where they were in the house? Like, yeah, that's well, fucking weird. That's a good point. Were they familiar with the the home? With the home, yeah. So police also believe that the bodies of the adults were moved and staged after being killed. Cecil's body had been found in a kneeling position in front of the sofa with a bag of marijuana in his hand. Sustaining multiple gunshot wounds to the front of his body, it's more likely that he was facing his attacker instead of the position that his body had been found. They also believe that the bag of marijuana had been placed there in his hand after he died. Since the bag was so large, I couldn't find how the size of it by what they mean by large, he would not have been able to close his fingers around it and would have dropped it during the attack. Also, the gun that was used to shoot Cecil in the leg was not the same gun used to shoot him in the neck. And it's believed that many of the shots inflicted were close to or after he had actually died. So they just came back and shot him some more. Yeah. Now, Sounds like somebody was really upset. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, um, my mind is I'm, my mind has just been completely boggled by this whole thing. So there's a loaded 12 gauge sawed off shotgun was found in the corner of the living room, no more than an arm's length away from Cecil. Five additional rounds of ammunition were found under the sofa. There was blood DNA on the shotgun that was confirmed to belong to Sanaya, the two month old. Now she wasn't shot. Let's make that clear. The blood on the barrel was an indication that it had been placed there after the shooting in the living room had occurred. There was no blood splatter from other victims on the gun, and Sanaya had been found in a different part of the house. So wherever she had been found, there was blood splatter that got on the gun, but for whatever reason, they moved the gun. Yeah, they brought it into the living room. Yeah. Now, this one's really weird. It sounds like they're setting it up to look like self-defense, maybe. Maybe. But still. Yeah, I just, I've never been in a situation like this, and I hope I never am, but I just don't know that I would be able to think logically enough in such a high anxiety situation, even after, that I would be able to do certain things. But I've never been in that type of situation either. I don't, shit, just don't be doing stuff. Don't touch shit, for real. Um, Now, this one's an odd one. So, Shindri Robertson was found in a seated position on the floor with her back to the sofa. Her legs were extended out and her head to the side between the sofa and the love seat. Her shirt had been pulled up and it was exposing her breast and her pants had been pulled down all the way, uh, exposing like the lower half of her body to her knees. A clear plastic bag containing three to five rocks of crack cocaine had been placed on the outer portion of her vagina. Little blood had been found on the floor underneath her body and it had been determined that she had been pulled from the sofa to the floor after she had died. A nearby sofa cushion had a large amount of coagulated blood that was consistent with the type of leg injury sustained by Shindri. Her pants were also saturated with blood, and her pants had bullet holes in the same locations as her legs, which means her pants were on when she was shot and the murderer pulled them down afterwards. The bag of crack cocaine was only slightly touching her as if maybe someone had tossed it on her or just kind of placed it there after the murder. And it's like... But why? Why would you even touch her? 
Why are you doing this? Yeah, it's very strange. And what does that even signify? Is it like just humiliating her after the fact? I would expect that from a serial killer. Yeah. But this is weird. There were three hairs collected from her thigh, her right leg, and buttocks, which were sent for testing. However, the police did not view the hairs as significant, citing the dirty conditions of the home and the considerable amount of traffic that was in and out of the home the previous month. I get it, but maybe still check it. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, we don't know their resources. They are trained and they know it's up. Marissa Williams' body was found slumped over Shindry's body with her legs positioned across Shindry's legs. However, the bloodstains on the carpet were located on the opposite side of where she was leaning. So she had just kind of been, I guess, slightly moved and leaned over. But what an odd way to land or like what happened? It doesn't make sense. Why why would her legs be over Shindry's? Unless someone was moving them around. That's the only thing to say. Hollis Seals had been found near the door that connected the kitchen and living room. His pants had been pulled down below his knees and a cup, wallet, and purse were found near his body. I do believe that the wallet was his and the purse actually belonged to Marissa. Police believe that he was shot where he was found, but in order to pull his pants down, the murderer did have to move his body. And like if he had been shot exactly there, the blood spot was beside him instead of like underneath him or around him. Mm. Throughout the home, police found five knife blades, including the blade that was lodged in CJ's head. Now, none of the knives were intact, and it's believed that the murderer had removed the handles after the assault. They did find one intact knife handle and what appeared to be broken pieces of another handle. Who the hell has time to take the damn handles off of a knife? I don't even know how I would take the handles off of our steak knives. I wonder if it was just like, if they were just breaking it off. Maybe. I guess that's, yeah, maybe. Maybe that that's what I thought. But how would you, even if you break it off, how would you do that and not still get fingerprints or some kind of DNA on them? Found in various locations throughout the home were blood-stained and broken pieces of wood that had been used to attack the deceased and surviving children. Overall, it was believed that the killer was already familiar with the home with the way he or she had used guns, knives, and the wooden boards that were already present in the home. It was also believed the killer had spent a considerable amount of time in the house staging this crime scene after the murders. Yeah, it seems like that would have taken a while. Yeah, this whole thing seems like it would have taken a while in my opinion, but I don't know. Officers start the process of interviewing neighbors and family members of the victims. During this process, they end up interviewing Cecil Dotson's brother, Jesse Dotson Jr. He's also known as just Junior. So going forward, I'm going to call him Junior. I'm going to provide just a little background on him, just so we can get an idea of what his life was like up until March the 3rd. In 1990, at 15, Junior's mother had tried to discipline him, and he ends up getting charged with disorderly conduct for making threats against her. About a month later, he gets charged with assault. A 13-year-old told his parents that Junior had punched him in the face and threatened to put him in the hospital if he didn't bring him $25 the next day. Fall of 1991, so this is about a year later, police arrest Jesse for disorderly conduct. His mother had told police he came home and wanted to fight his brother, Cecil. According to the arrest record, after placing her son in the bedroom and locking the door, Jesse broke the door open and punched several large holes in the wall. Jesse then placed his finger in his mother's face, telling her he was going to kill her. And when officers arrived, Jesse was loud and angry, refusing to calm down and still wanting to fight his brother. 1992, Junior was charged with disorderly conduct after he cussed a neighbor during an argument and then threw two beer bottles into her apartment. Okay, December of 92. So this is about six days before his birthday, 17th birthday. 
He's riding in a car that gets pulled over. When the officer approaches the vehicle, he sees a 20-gauge sawed-off shotgun and a 38 caliber pistol on the floorboard of the vehicle. I don't know why this is so important because he wasn't driving and he's in the car. So, I don't, he's not a felon. He's just pulled over. So, I guess there's a report written up that he was there when this happened. Now, in 1994, so on January 8th of 1994, after purchasing drugs from Junior, a man named Hallie Ralph Cox discovers that he had actually bought soap shavings. The two men get into an argument, and Junior ends up shooting and killing Cox. Before fleeing the scene, he also steals $20 off of his body. Four months later, on May 5th of 94, police arrest and charge Junior with first-degree murder. He ends up pleading guilty to a lesser charge of second-degree murder, And as part of his plea deal, he gets 18 years in prison with the eligibility of parole after serving around five and a half years, which is about 30% of time served. However, he doesn't get paroled until about 13 to 14 years into his sentence. So he almost served all that time. Yeah, about served it all. Now, 2007, August 27th of 2007, he is released on parole and moves in with his sister, Nicole. Junior gets a job with his father, Jesse Sr., working as a painter. By January 26th of 2008, his parole and his sentence expire. So he is done. He is free and clear. Now we're going to go to his events starting March 1st. This is a Saturday. Jesse Sr., Jesse Jr., and a man named William Fat Waddell, who is the half-brother to Junior and Cecil, they all go to Cecil's home to watch a basketball game. Unfortunately, they were unable to watch the game because Cecil's TV wasn't picking up the signal. Jesse Sr. ends up leaving around 6 or 6.30 that night, and Fat leaves around 10.30 or 11. Cecil and his family were alive when both men left. While they were there, Marissa Williams, who is Cecil's fiance, and five of Cecil's children are present in the home. Four of those children are Marissa's. There's one child, a two-year-old, named Cecil II. Cecil shares with his ex-girlfriend, I guess. Her name is Erica Smith. March 2nd on Sunday, Jesse Sr. arrives at Nicole's apartment to pick up Junior. Nicole explains that she hasn't seen him, so Jesse Sr. asks her to tell Junior if he wants to keep his job, he needs to call him. Now, Junior does call Jesse Sr. later in the day and tells him that he'd gotten into an argument with his girlfriend, Sheila Jones, and that she had hit his cell phone after they had argued. He never provided a reason for why he missed work. And I don't know that, I don't know if the dad asked him. Maybe he did. Junior and Fat have dinner together that evening with Junior even making a suggestion that they go pick up Cecil. Fat tries to call Cecil multiple times, but he never answers. Obviously, they don't go to Cecil's house because he's either not there or he's busy. You know, Mm -hmm. no biggie. On this same day, Erica Smith, who is Cecil 2's mother, had been trying unsuccessfully to get in touch with Cecil Sr., She had called multiple times throughout the day and even stopped by around 3 that afternoon. When she stopped by, the main door was partially open, but the screen door was closed and locked and no one was answering after she knocked. She states that she could hear a radio playing but didn't hear any adults or children to signify that someone was in the house. From the screen door, she could only see the television and the pictures that were hanging on the wall. So she couldn't see anything else in the living room the way it was sitting. The door was just slightly ajar. Now, is this when the police were called? Not yet. Okay. I was just, she, I was had, she went over there on Sunday. Right. On Monday, March the 3rd, Junior goes to work with Jesse Sr. around 8 a.m., but they end up having to stop around 11 because it starts raining. Junior calls Jesse Sr. a little later in the day, asking him to drive by Cecil's house because Erica had called Nicole, expressing her concerns about not hearing back from Cecil. 
She also found that other members of the family had not recently heard from Cecil and he had never showed up for work that morning, which was apparently it was unlike him to do. Erica also called Fat Waddell at work multiple times who told her to call the police. So she calls the police and proceeds to Cecil's home on Lester Street and waits for them to arrive. Okay, so now this is where we started the story. That's where we started the story. March the 4th is a Tuesday. Junior's brought in for questioning by the police. They ask him to describe his activities on March 1st. He tells the police that he had went to Cecil's house to watch a game on TV, but was not able to due to the reception being bad. He states that Hollis Seals, also known as E, arrived later in the evening. And around 10 or 10.30 p.m. that night, all three men went to the apartment of a man named Willie Frank Hill. And so he'll be referenced as Frank going forward because that's how they were referencing him in the court documents. Um, and his apartment was near Highland Avenue and Spotswood Avenue. After leaving Frank's apartment, the man picked up Hollis Seal's girlfriend, and then the entire group went to buy marijuana at another apartment complex between 11.30 and 12 a.m. Both Cecil and Junior purchased marijuana and leave the apartment complex. After leaving, Junior explains that they run into Mrs. Smith, who who is Erica Smith, They then proceed to a home located off of Lamar Avenue where they spoke with another woman for around 30 minutes and then proceeded to pick his son up from his maternal grandmother's home. They discover that his son is not there, so he gives the grandmother some money and leaves after about 10 minutes. This is like one in the morning. Yeah, it's super late or early. Like. Out doing stuff. I don't. Well, it's more like, why are you? I don't know how old his son is, but why are you? Picking him up at this time of day. (laughs) Morning. So at 2.15 or 2.30 that morning, he parts ways with the group when they drop him off at his girlfriend's apartment. The girlfriend, Sheila Jones, is not there, but her daughter, Kiara, is there and she lets him in. They apparently argue because she is alone with her boyfriend in the apartment. And after the argument, he goes to bed, stating that Miss Jones ends up arriving back home around 5.05 a.m. Now, the police ask if Cecil has any enemies. So, Junior states that Cecil and Frank had had an argument two weeks earlier, and the men and their girlfriends had just come in from drinking at a local club. Frank's girlfriend had actually called the police on Cecil because he had slapped Erica Smith. When the police arrived, Cecil apparently told them that there were drugs inside of Frank's girlfriend's apartment, and Frank lived there too. So that was a big hairy deal. Now, it just starts to get a little more complicated here because Frank and Cecil were apparently members of a gang called the Gangster Disciples. According to Junior, gang members are not permitted to call the police on each other, and Frank apparently wrote Cecil up for a violation of the rule. Okay, let me just say this. I don't know the rules. I don't know the rules of this stuff. But why does Frank's girlfriend get to call the police? That's what I was thinking. And <laughs> and did nobody else call the police? Why is Cecil getting wrote up? Because your girlfriend called the police. That's why they're there in the first place. And then he's like, I mean, I get because he said there's drugs in there. But it doesn't sound like he was trying to do that to Frank. He was trying to do that to her. Either way, that's a nasty situation. But I don't understand the rules either. Is it because it's a girlfriend and she's not part of the gang? I don't know. I don't either. Um, So the gangster disciples were supposed to have a meeting to determine Cecil's guilt, but Cecil apparently never showed up. And there were a few things stating that he was trying to actually get out of being in the gang. Now, Junior was able to provide the information that Cecil always carried a 45 handgun, but he also owned an AK-47 and had two additional magazines that were located under the dresser at his home. He had also had a sold-off shotgun and he had access to a 9mm that belonged to Marissa Williams. 
According to Junior, Fat Waddell had asked Frank to call a man named Doc Holliday and find out what happened on Leicester Street or who might have committed the offenses. So Doc Holliday, we don't have his real name, is... He's a gang member. He's apparently like a governor or, again, I don't know the hierarchy, but he's one that he's he's a higher up. Immediately, that makes you think, did somebody, did somebody call a hit on somebody? Yeah, just killed everybody. Just for reference, the police were not looking into these murders as gang related. But with the information that Junior provided, they did now have to investigate the possibility of gang involvement. I don't know anything about gangs again. I've never known them to be like that with children, though. It None of that makes sense. None of that. Like, that whole crime scene doesn't make sense that it would even be gang-related. It's the first thing I thought was bullshit. Were they new? Did they just start their gang? The police did follow leads associated with the gangster disciples and even interviewed a few of the gang members. Police were told by a man named Cedric Atkins that he had heard that Cecil had stolen $300,000 from a local drug dealer. There was another confidential informant that reported hearing Cecil stole $50,000 from Doc Holliday. Now, the police were aware that having knowledge of gangs and drug activity would have been useful in staging the crime scene. However, based on past investigations, the investigators knew for sure that gang members would not have remained inside the home after the murders, nor would they have gone unarmed and used weapons they found in the home. Plus, Police were not aware of any gang-related murders where women had been murdered and children were assaulted and killed with knives and boards. Nice try. Yeah, it's very unusual to just show up and then use all their guns like, on them. oh no, I forgot my pistol. Can I use yours? Uh-uh. No, that, that doesn't fly. Apparently, there were members of the gangster disciples that became angry when finding out that they were possibly being implicated for these murders. I guess I'll say this because I know that you'll go, we'll go into it a little bit more later, but Junior was not part of the Gangster Disciples. Cecil was. He, uh, Junior was part of the Kitchen Crips. From what I gathered, they there's no bad blood between them. They would even be seen like hanging out together. Right. So this wasn't, this probably, and I'm sure the police knew that, like this just didn't make sense. Okay. Junior's sister came home to discover that her door had been kicked in on either the 4th or 5th of March. So she and her children, obviously scared, moved in temporarily with her cousin. Now, I don't know if Junior moved with them. I guess he did. Now, while at her cousin's house, she gets a phone call on her cell phone from her apartment's landline. So somebody's calling her from inside her apartment. If that does not make you shit bricks, I don't, I don't know what that, does. Yeah, that's That's scary. scary. <laughs> um, Junior ends up answering one of these calls and says that it sounds like a man on the other end trying to disguise his voice. So terrified, Nicole goes to the police and tells them what's going on. They end up taking the entire family into protective custody. I couldn't find like what the person might have said when they called or if maybe he just heard them and then hung up like not giving them the time of day because I'd be interested to know what did they say. Yeah. So before being moved to protective custody, Junior does become agitated and frantic and believes that the police are trying to pin the murders on him. Police did speak with Junior and let him know that they were not there to arrest him, but to protect him and his family until they could find who murdered his family. From here, the entire family is moved to a safe house. During this time, there was a moment where there was coverage of him on the television that caused him apparently to become agitated and frantic, and he ended up getting a 9mm and was threatening to kill himself. And that's the why the police came in to say, hey, we're not here to do this, blah, 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 blah. We're just, we're trying to protect y'all. Right. He saw his picture on the news. Well, and they were talking about, yeah, because it's already a very stressful situation. Right. They're in, they have more to worry about than just potentially one killer. There's potentially, it could be a gang related situation or it could be somebody sitting in that room. 
but he gets agitated. But police were able to confirm that that nine millimeter that he had was not used in the murders. Say it. Go ahead. Why did a felon have a nine millimeter? And they didn't arrest him right there because he was a felon. I wondered that. Yeah. But I don't have that answer. I don't know. You can ask Memphis. They obviously had other things to worry about. I'm just going to say that too. (laughs) They have bigger shit to worry about. Throughout this whole experience, the surviving children who are also under protective custody are at La Bonner Children's Hospital. A physician reported that when CJ arrived at the hospital, he was moaning but was awake, lucid, and able to follow commands. CJ had trauma and swelling to his forehead, part of a steak knife, so it was not a sawzall blade part of a steak knife sticking out of his head, and a six to seven inch laceration in his scalp that extended down his forehead. CJ's skull was severely fractured and large pieces of his skull had been driven inward with a blunt force object. CJ also had either a glancing stab wound or two separate stab wounds on the back of his arm and chest, a superficial laceration across his neck and a laceration on his right hand and a laceration on his left thumb. CJ does survive, like... That is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, yeah, he was there for days. So the ch- just for reference, I get, I, and I didn't say that, but from the time it happened to the time that police were finally called and they arrived at the scene, everybody in that house had been sitting there for over 40 hours. Yeah, days. At least two. CJ, Cedric, and Sanaya survived. That is, oh my gosh, that, that is amazing. And oh, how terrible as well to sit there. And I hear people knocking on the door. If they heard it, I hope they didn't. Like, if they heard that and they can't do nothing. Cedric exhibited significant facial trauma and was essentially semi-comatose when he arrived at the hospital. Cedric had sustained injuries that were consistent with being beaten with a board, including multiple fractures to his face, mid-face, and the lower portion of his skull. He had a fractured nose, which had been pushed inward, and a small skull fracture with bruising on the back of his brain. Cedric also sustained stab wounds to one eye, his forehead, and his neck. Again, that is amazing that they, that he survived. Yeah. And Sanaya, who's the two-month-old. So when Sanaya arrived at the hospital, she had significant head trauma, which included a large cut in her scalp that exposed bone. The right side of her skull had been pushed or crushed in with a blunt object, which resulted in an open, depressed skull fracture. A CT scan revealed that the covering of her brain was probably cut and that her brain was mildly bruised. It was determined that her injuries were consistent with being struck with a board, and she also had stab wounds to her left lower extremity. She's two months old. The hell are you doing? Why are you doing that to a baby? (sighs) So police did try to speak with CJ at the hospital on March the 5th. They attempted to speak with him so early due to the the extent of his injuries and the high potential that nobody thought he was going to pull through. Had a knife in his head. Yeah, that's pretty serious. Um, the initial interview, CJ was in and out of consciousness, and when he was awake, he was cussing, talking crazy. That's what the police said, and screaming out names such as Cassandra and Roderick. Cassandra is actually the sister of Marissa, one of the victims. Police were able to determine that she was nowhere near, like she had nothing to do with it. They were able to quickly determine rule her out. Now, on March 7th, police received a call from the hospital stating that CJ was awake and rational. So they speak with him again. And during this interview, which is recorded, he states that Uncle Junior was the person that killed his parents and their friends. So I'm just going to play devil's advocate for this a little bit. I understand that with the seriousness of the situation, um, that they had no idea who was doing what and why. I do know, I, I couldn't find it again. I know that the second time they went to talk to him, 
that there was an like a child advocate in the room, but it does concern me that they did talk to the children without a family member of some kind or representation. I get the child advocate, but I don't know that person. Right. Were they trying to sway the child's opinion? And I'm not trying to be like that. It was recorded, though. It was recorded. But even on the first 48, you don't even get to hear the entire interview. Are the questions open-ended? This baby, he's a baby. That's what I'm calling him. Has a severe head injury. I mean... It did. It just did concern me. Is there was there nobody out of town that could have come in? Like I get it, but I, I do get concerned about that. Police give the order to pick up Junior from the safe house and bring him in for additional questioning. The police ask him to go over the events of his day again. Junior goes over his day, saying basically the same things as before. At some point during the interview, he does start to shut down and he starts to provide one word answers or just head nods as his responses. Yes, that makes me wonder, like. Are they are they asking questions that are that sound like they're implicating him and he starts getting tired of answering? Because you can like I I do highly suggest watching the first forty eight because you get to see a snippet of it. Do you do we get to see the entire five to six hours of his inter- interrogation? No, you only get because that shows only what like forty five minutes. Yeah, but it can give you an idea of what's going on, and that's going to be a good thing to consider in our when, yeah when we talk about the trial. I, I sometimes when police are questioning, I kind of view them like lawyers in a sense, and I hope nobody gets pissed about that. But they want to trip you up so that you they, they can see, catch you in a lie. They want to see if your story changes yeah. when they ask it a different way. Because it is an issue if it changes. Mm. You know, if you said you were doing this, but you reword that question just right, and it, and then all of a sudden, no, you were doing this. It's like, oh, okay, liar. But if you're solid, you're solid. They're not going to be able to trip anything up, you know? So at one point... Junior asks to go to the bathroom, and when he returns, the detective asks Junior what his family calls him. Now, and he replies, Junior. So the police didn't know that he went by this name yeah, when they were questioning him. him. Jesse. They'd been calling him Jesse. Right. And so they didn't know. And the detective then asks, is there anybody else in the family that is called by that same name? And he says, no. The detective then asks if anyone in the family had ever confused him with another member of the family, and he said, no. The detective then then plays the recording of CJ saying that Uncle Junior was the person that attacked and killed everyone. Junior then tells the detective that him and Cecil had gotten into an argument while they were out. The argument lasted all the way back to Cecil's house, and when it escalated, Cecil reached for his shotgun, and that's when he began shooting, using both his gun and Marissa Williams' 9mm. He then tried to get rid of the children because they had seen him. I don't know how he got Marissa's gun unless it was just laying out. After making this confession, he began to cry and he requested to speak with his mother. When his mother arrived, she asked him if the police were trying to put it on him. And he responded telling her that he had done it. When she asked him why the babies, he told her because they'd seen him. And there is a thing where she's like, but the baby, the two months, she's two months old. And I want to say the first 48 shows that she's because, I mean, what was she going to do? Yeah, she ain't going to remember nothing. Yeah. He then stated that he rode one of the kids' bikes away from the home to his girlfriend's home. Now, the police did find the bicycle in a shed behind Junior's girlfriend's residence. They were hoping to find DNA from at least the victims on the bike, but instead only found genetic material from an unknown male. There was no DNA from any of the victims on the bike or Junior. I'm also going to say this. There was no DNA for Junior in that house. There was no DNA on the victims that belonged to Junior. 
His DNA was nowhere. Spoiler alert. No hairs, no blood, no saliva, no nothing. It is very strange. How is that even possible? Right. Also, he he did have a bit of a grudge against his family because... When he was in jail previously. Well, they didn't come and visit him mm-hmm. like he thought they should. Apparently, his mother came to visit once, but nobody else came to visit. And he was holding a grudge. Siblings fight and stuff like that. But I guess him and Cecil had had a few issues recently when he had gotten out and stuff. Well, Cecil kept telling everybody that he was, he just got out. He said, this is my bitch ass brother that just got out of jail or got out of prison. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a girl. I'm not about to tell anybody that somebody got out of prison in case they fucking shoot me, shank me. I don't know. (laughs) Fuck off. I'm not damn it. (laughs) But it's his brother, so. Exactly. And he's so. Just get, he's just ragging on him, you know, but. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know, because we don't know how that situation went. True. Um, or even the conversation. Where, was that meant to be a a letdown, or was it meant to be like, you know, he's from prison, so, fuck, you know, don't mess with me. Yeah, they, they did have a few issues. But I didn't find any that would have constituted all of this. But I also don't know. So on March 8th. Jesse Dotson Jr. is arrested, and he's charged with six counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder. This is where we're going to leave off. Next week, we're going to talk about the trial. Michael is. Yeah. Michael's going to talk all about, about it. So thank you for being patient with this and listening to these details. I do think all of them were very important, and there's still some that I feel like I probably should have put in there. But we are going to link all of our resources, everything that we've got. You can read the whole appeal online. And you can even, there's a trial blog uh, that you can read day by day. It's fascinating. Like to me, initially reading it, it sounds like multiple attackers. How do you overpower four Four adults? adults. Which I guess if you started shooting with two guns, you could rather quickly, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, because the kids, you'd you'd have more time. I get like one of the documents I read, it was like the way the police were portraying it was like it wouldn't take that long. Now, I when you're beating five children to death, that doesn't take long. I mean, that part would, but. But mm-hmm. even the bullets, like, like shooting the adults. So we've got a 20 gunshots, like 20 gunshot wounds. 20. I'm surprised. Now, I get that it doesn't take long, but 20. Yeah, nobody heard that. Mm-mm. And well, here, no, I can't say mm-mm. Yes. When people were, neighbors were questioned, they did hear gunshots, but that wasn't unusual for that area. I did hear one thing that stated that it wasn't uncommon for Cecil to shoot his gun off on the holidays, but I don't know how true that is. <laughs> Apartment pop. Uh, but they lived in a house. All right. <laughs> I don't see this taking like 10 minutes. I don't see anything that says that like when Kiara let Junior into the apartment, that there was blood. There is no way that whoever did this, even Junior, unless he changed his clothes, there's no way that he was not covered in blood or had at least some type of... Splatter def- or something. Yeah, or even a defense wound from somebody trying to get him off. A lot of people who attack with knives in like a rage like that, it sounds like. They hurt themselves. They cut themselves, yeah. On accident. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about the trial. Next week. We're not defending uh-uh. Junior. We, we don't, we're, I, I have my own questions. I'm not defending anybody. I don't know, but um, I don't know how a person did this themselves, but uh, it can happen. We know that, so. Because nobody, they didn't take photographs of Junior's hands at the time. Yeah, but that's trial information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cut that Don't out. be giving stuff out. I'm not. 
All right. So don't forget to like us, love us, rate us, review us on the Apple Podcast, Podchase, or whatever it is. Don't forget to send us to your friends and neighbors and loved ones. They love you in this safe up. Exactly. <laughs> don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Until next time, you guys. We'll see you at the trial. See you then. Bye. Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.